0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. Two that you might like are A Companion to Marx's Capital, The Complete Edition, and The Limits to Capital, which are both by David Harvey and out in new editions. For nearly 40 years, David Harvey has written and lectured on capital, becoming one of the world's foremost Marxist scholars. Based on his lectures, this volume, bringing together his guides to volumes 1, 2, and much of 3, presents this depth of learning to a broader audience, guiding first-time readers through a fascinating and deeply rewarding text. A Companion to Marx's Capital offers fresh, original, and sometimes critical interpretations of a book that changed the course of history, and, as Harvey intimates, may do so again. Now a classic of Marxian economics, The Limits to Capital, provides one of the best theoretical guides to the history and geography of capitalist development. In this edition, Harvey updates his seminal text with a substantial discussion of the turmoil in world markets today. Delving into concepts such as fictitious capital and uneven geographical development, Harvey takes the reader step by step through layers of crisis formation, beginning with Marx's controversial argument concerning the falling rate of profit and closing with a timely foray into the geopolitical and geographical implications of Marx's work. A companion to Marx's capital, the complete edition, and the limits to capital— are both by David Harvey and out now in new editions from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The teacher strike wave continues... I see my standing up for me. I see my teachers standing up for me. More than 30,000 members of the Los Angeles Teachers Union are on strike, not only for higher wages, which they certainly deserve, but also for the well-funded and great schools that the city's working-class students of color have been systematically denied. A situation that has been tremendously exacerbated by a corporate reform superintendent dead set on privatizing the district. The union, United Teachers Los Angeles, or UTLA, has in recent years been led by a militant, rank-and-file caucus that has shunted aside the old guard's narrow vision of service unionism in favor of a big-picture movement unionism that makes the struggles of teachers, parents, and students one and the same. Today, I discuss all of that and more with labor journalist and returning DIG guest, Sarah Jaffe. Before we get started, however, I'm asking you, my listeners, to support this podcast at patreon.com slash the DIG. The main reason you should contribute, if you can afford to, is because we truly could not exist without your support. But we do indeed have swag to sweeten the deal. $5 a month gets you our newsletter— Ten dollars, and we'll send you either Jacobin's ABC's of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity contribute $20 or more a month and we will send you a box of left-wing books so put your money where your earbuds are and contribute what you can at patreon.com thedig the dig that's patreo dot com the dig okay Here's Sarah Jaffe, a reporting fellow at Type Media Institute, until recently known as the Nation Institute. She is the author of Necessary Trouble and of an upcoming book on the problems with the labor of love. Sarah Jaffe, welcome back to The Dig.
1: Thank you, as always, for having me back, Dan.
0: What is this strike about? Wages, of course, are an issue. But what I've heard teachers talking about in the reporting that I've read is huge class sizes, a skeletal support staff with nurses moving from one school to another throughout the week, and a incredibly powerful corporate education reform movement that runs the district that is dead set on privatizing the school system By way of converting the district to charters, yeah. What's the strike over?
1: So the immediate cause of the strike. If you look at some of the signs at most of these rallies, you will see Austin Butner's name mentioned a whole heck of a lot. So he is the (laughs) relatively newly imposed superintendent of schools who is chosen by what is an elected school board out here in Los Angeles. But if you look at the money that gets spent on school board elections, the last time the school board was voted on. It was like a $12 million school board election. So, you know, it's been interesting for me because I live in New York. I've covered Chicago. We've talked about Philadelphia plenty, about places where they don't have an elected school board and they don't have local control and everybody calls for democratic control over the schools. But how democratic is your control over the schools when, you know, Eli Broad and the Waltons are spending $12 $12 million to buy the school board?
0: About as democratic as Citizens United makes our
1: electoral democracy. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so the school board here was um, bought and paid for a big chunk of it by the charter school industry. And so they bring in Austin Butner, who has this plan to do in Los Angeles, what has been done in um, New Orleans, very specifically, and also in Newark, break the big district. And we'll talk about the size of this district shortly, I'm sure, but to break this district up into 32 quote unquote portfolio districts and essentially hand them over to charter school um, companies. And so
0: the portfolio model basically mm-hmm. chops up the district right. into a bunch of competing companies effectively right. that either exactly. succeed or fail in the marketplace
1: right exactly and so the whole plan and this is a guy who has no experience with education at all right so for whatever reason they decided that he was the person to implement this thing it's not because he knows how to run a school system so the teachers are mad at this guy and So, a lot of the problems with California public schools go back to Proposition 13, which I'm sure is in your notes somewhere to talk about. Um, The funding model in general is screwed, as it is for public schools nationwide. The school, the class sizes have been going up steadily for a decade. A lot of the problems that the teachers are striking over, they have been struggling with for a long time. But right now, what they really are arguing, and you'll hear UTLA president Alex Caputo Pearl say, this is a fight for the soul of public education. And really, they see this as the last stand against the charters. And if you look around at the country, this really does kind of start to feel like the last stand against the charters especially ironic when, you know, what I'm hearing from teachers over and over again is we don't have nurses in schools. We don't have counselors in schools. We don't have all of these other basic things that also make it impossible for kids to learn. Just like if they can't, they can't learn, if they can't see the blackboard, they also can't learn if they haven't eaten breakfast that day. They can't learn if they're standing in the back because there's not enough desks. They can't learn if they're so traumatized from seeing somebody get shot down the street from their house last night that they can barely function. All of these things that teachers are calling for services to actually help with. So the kids, when they're in the classroom, they can actually just sit down and learn.
0: What have you been seeing on the picket lines? And I emphasize plur- lines plural, because so you've many been of them. <laughs> all across the district. And it's a huge district, both in terms of the number of schools, teachers, yeah. and students, and actually just like the, the footprint of the city is, right. is gigantic.
1: Right. Yeah. So the district itself, this is the second largest school district in the country and the largest with an elected school board. They say that a lot. Um, But what that means in principle is that this has only slightly fewer students than like New York City, which is the biggest. What it means in practice, because I'm in, you know, L.A. County here, is that the district is literally 960 square miles. I looked that up because I was driving through it and going, where the heck even (laughs) am I? So this morning I was down in the southernmost point of the district. Um, at Harry Bridges span school, which we'll talk more about Harry Bridges school because it was great. Um, almost down to long beach, almost down to the Harbor. Like when I was driving away, I could see the, the lifts at the port. And today, this afternoon, after I get done talking to you, I'm going back up to the Sunland to which is in the mountains, which is going to be, you know, um, if I were to drive from directly from one of those schools to another, it would take me two hours more. That's in out in, LA traffic.
0: The, the latter is out in East LA. I take it.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it's, Literally, when you look out one window of the schools, you see the mountains and you look out the other and you just like the entire valley spreads out below you. So it's really, really, really a huge, huge district. I keep stressing that because to bring together this many teachers, like politically and to get to a 98% strike vote, which the union did, is an incredible achievement. Also, they are bringing teachers in. So what happens every morning The teachers are on the picket line from like 6.30, 7 a.m., depending on how early the school opens, until about 9 or 10. And then every morning there have been big, massive rallies. So the first two days, the first rally um, started at Grand Park downtown and walked to the L.A. Unified School District office. And the police count of people at that rally was 46,000. So, you know, you and I know the police undercount those numbers. Yesterday, they had another massive rally with members of Bandos and Motley playing outside of the California Charter Schools Association. I do not have a number on that one, but the aerial photos look like about the same size as the one the day before. Today, they're actually spread out at regional rallies so that everyone can get there. Because like if your school is, you know, two hours from downtown L.A., not every teacher was at those rallies. Then they go back to the school in the afternoon for afternoon picket lines. And that's to be there when the kids get out of school, what the few kids that are going to school and to just be a presence on the line at the beginning and the ending of every day so that, you know, the community can see people there. I mean, picket lines are always, you know, a thing it's been pouring here, which, you know, in LA County is pretty rare um, for it to be this wet for the last three days straight. And you have teachers in red ponchos. Um, Some people have showed up in like full on sort of, Fishing gear, wetsuit pants, stuff like that. Um, but everybody's out. And they've got tents. They've got umbrellas. People have been painting their umbrellas with picket with, you know, slogans. And the feel so far is like teachers are mad. They're having a great time. They feel the support from the community. And they are ready for this to be a long strike
0: before we move on, you mentioned that you were at a school named after, longshoremen's union leader, legendary left-wing labor militant, Harry Bridges. What did what did you see there today?
1: Oh, my goodness. Harry Bridges. I was so excited when I heard that there was a UT, or an LAUSD school named after Harry Bridges. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, I have to go there. Um, and so it is down south. It is down near the port. And the teachers there were—when I got there this morning, they were facing off with the police because the— um, the delivery driver—I don't remember what union he was from. Anyway, it was a delivery driver who had, you know, tried to make a delivery and then come to the picket line and looked at the picket line and said, "I'm not crossing the picket line," and driven off the last couple of days. And so apparently today, they were getting pressure from up top, and so one of the um, supervisors came down there and they called the police, and there were a bunch of police cars. And the teachers are just like, "We're holding the picket line. We're sorry." So we're not letting you through. I know your boss wants you to do this, but we're going to hold the line.
0: And this is an and, actual um, picket line.
1: Yeah. No, so. they held the line. They did not let him through. The cops sort of threatened to cite people, threatened to arrest people. And the, um, there's, a, there's a chapter chair at each school, and then there's a cluster leader who is sort of in charge of the group of schools in that neighborhood. And so both of those folks were on the line. And they just said, you know, if you're going to arrest people, arrest us first. I'll take the arrest. And then uh, there were some, because it's Harry Bridges School, right, there are a bunch of longshore workers there. Um, the ILWU is uh, has adopted, I think, several schools in the district, but this one obviously has special meaning for them because it's the Harry Bridges School. And so, you know, the longshore workers were like, you guys don't get arrested. We'll get arrested. Uh, So this is what solidarity looks like. And, you know, so these are schools, again, this one, I think they said they had 90% of the kids on free lunch, and a lot of kids at that school actually get three meals a day at school. They feed them breakfast, they feed them before they leave at the end of the day. So the teachers are organizing brown bags to give to parents so that they don't have to cross the picket line. This school, the number I heard today was there are over 1,100 students who go to that school, and there were 52 of them who showed up. So this is what it looks like when the community is behind the school. Um, And particularly when you have a very powerful, very militant union that shows up, adopts your school and uh, walks the line with you. So they had, yeah, we had a few members of the ILWU on the line. They said they've had teachers from Anaheim who came and joined them. Teachers um, from, well, faculty from the California Faculty Association, nurses from California Nurses Association, And, um, workers from the SEIU local that represents the, um, the other campus staff who aren't in UTLA, um, they are at least at that school, possibly voting to go on a solidarity strike. So I do not know what the results of that are going to be. I do not know what the legality of that would be, but I think that's, um, a fascinating sort of look at like what it means to actually have solidarity and have that community again, built around the school and built around this sort of identity of being like the Harry Bridges school. So the, you know, there's a poster out front with Harry and a big quote from Harry and the teachers were telling me inside the auditorium, they've got his face there too. i was like, we need more schools named after militant radical labor leaders that the U S tried to deport for, I don't know, a couple (laughs) of decades and always failed at. it's my favorite Harry Bridges story, right? They were like, he's a communist. And he's like, I've never been a member of the communist party. Dare you to find out differently. And they couldn't.
0: How should we think about this strike in the context of the spring 2018 strike wave that swept through West Virginia, Arizona and Oklahoma, so-called red states?
1: So what I would say about this is that those strike certainly has like helped change the narrative nationally on teachers life, but this was going to happen regardless of those. Um, this is a union that has a reform caucus that is part of the um, movement that came out that we sort of saw take public attention in Chicago, right? When the Chicago teachers struck in 2012 it was because a reform caucus had taken power in that union and really driven a, a political change there. And the same thing has happened in LA and they have been also trying to reform the union for you know over a decade. The caucus here that is in charge, they're called Union Power. They took charge in 2014, and they are connected and work really closely with the um, the core caucus in Chicago, with the United Caucus of Rank and File Educators that was formed after Chicago. And so this is part of a deep movement that is doing sort of constant on the ground work of reorganizing teachers' unions. And I would say that, like, conversely, like, the Red State Rebellion wouldn't have happened without Corps' existence, without this reform movement within the teachers' union. The
0: Caucus of Rank-and-File Educators from Chicago.
1: Well, the United Caucus. The oh, the National, national
0: the whole, then HONAT, whole gotcha. Yeah,
1: gotcha. because mm-hmm. a bunch of people from that were out there supporting them. They were really were aware of how to, you know, help and build this on the ground. This strike would have happened if last year didn't. And that's really, really important to say because, like, I keep emphasizing, again, the size of this district, the complications of this district, the, like, political span of this district, the ethnic diversity in this district. To bring that together has taken a lot of work. And it's really showing on the ground when you go to the picket line, teachers are taking attendance and they're reporting those numbers in real time back to the union. So the union is keeping track constantly of what the energy is like on the picket lines. How many people showed up? Did anybody not show up today? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? How are we keeping this going? And that is something that has been, you know, it was done on the fly in West Virginia and Arizona um, in Oklahoma but here we're seeing the sort of results of a decade of union experimentation and union reform and debate and discussion and strategic um testing coming out in just a, a massive 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 strike
0: i want to talk about that behind the the scenes work which i had been thinking about since you wrote this short end-of-the-year New York Times piece and quoted organizer Miriam Kaba saying, quote, hope is a discipline. And you went on to write, quote, that discipline is what sustains organizers who often grind away unseen for years. This is, most of the time, what unions and working people's organizations do, make connections and hope the sparks they light will catch and burn. In L.A., as you were just mentioning, years of precisely just that sort of everyday organizing amongst teachers and in the Mm -hmm. community had to happen to make this strike possible and to win this absolutely overwhelming vote to authorize the strike from, from teachers. Explain a little bit about what that work has looked like as you understand it, particularly in terms of the model that we've seen in Chicago and throughout the Red for Ed movement of building powerful ties with parents and and community members. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, you cannot overestimate the importance of the teachers unions really turning to embed themselves in the community. And I mean, you know, public schools are already embedded in the community. Every teacher that I've talked to here has been talking about, you know, our community around our school is really strong. Our parents are with us. They all know us. That's, you know, that's like par for the course for teachers. That's always been true, even at the peak of sort of teacher bashing in American public discourse parents have always liked their kids' teachers, whether or not they sort of think teachers as a whole or are whatever it is that they're being told that teachers are, they always like their kids' teachers. And teachers have realized over the last, again, you know, 10 years or so, how to use that and how to get really serious about making those relationships matter and making those relationships um, about what they can do for the community, what they can bring to the bargaining table for the community. The best example of this that I can give from UTLA right now is one of the demands that they brought to the bargaining table was the union, or excuse me, the school district owns some vacant lots in LA. And LA is having a massive housing crisis right now as most big cities in the country are. And so the union said, okay, what if we use some of this vacant land that the district owns to build affordable housing. And the union technically is not able to bargain over this, but they bring these demands to the bargaining table, demands that they develop in coordination with parents, with community organizations. There's a few community organizations that have been doing solidarity actions alongside the teachers all week and have more of them planned for the next couple of days that you'll probably hear a lot about. they develop these demands with the community. They develop these demands with their students. There's a great student organization here called Students Deserve. I spoke to one of their members on Monday. And they, you know, they're making these demands to make the entire community feel invested in the school, but also to I just I just keep thinking of public school teachers making themselves sort of the guardians of the public good, really writ large. So they're not just saying public education is a right. They are saying that, and they're saying that very loudly and very clearly and have been saying it for a while. But they're also saying housing is a right. They're saying our kids shouldn't be over-policed. We shouldn't spend more money locking people up than we do funding their schools. They're literally reclaiming public space in these mass rallies every day, right? But they're really, in doing that, like this is most educators on any of these strikes wouldn't call themselves socialists, but I just kind of keep thinking, like, this is what socialism should look like.
0: And this is precisely what the Union Power Slate was all about. I was reading, and has been all about since the beginning, I yeah. read this 2014 Labor Notes story to about the Union Power Slate to prepare for this interview, and it quoted one of its leaders at the time, now the Union president, Alex Caputo-Pearl, who was... Extremely critical in the article of the old guard's service union model, which was exemplified by this rally for a raise that took place around that time, and he argued that it was way too narrowly focused on teachers' bread and butter issues at the expense of a bigger vision of transforming public education that would actually galvanize parents in the community and make it impossible for the district to pit the two against each each other. And it seems like that's precisely—I mean—he went on to overwhelmingly win that year's union election, win re-election more recently, and that's precisely what they're putting into practice now.
1: Yeah, and if you look at last year's Red for Ed strikes, again, they were largely about money, which is fine. Like, teachers deserve a raise. The schools here are—the conditions here, again, are just—the teachers could use a raise. One of the teachers pointed out to me that um, he teaches at a school in Silver Lake, which is a pretty gentrified area. And he was like, I can't afford to live in the the neighborhood where I teach. And I am, you know, he's a public school teacher and he's married to somebody who also has a full time, you know, salaried position. And they can't afford to live in the neighborhood where they teach. And he's like, you know, even if we get the 6% raise that we're asking for, I'm still down like 10% just on cost of living from when I started teaching. So, I mean, the the housing crisis. When we we're talking about it being important to build affordable housing because if the students and the families can't afford this, but like the teachers can't afford to live here either. So I, I don't ever want to minimize the fact that like there is nothing wrong with workers striking for higher wages. Right. I say all this because it's really important.
0: And this notion that because a, a worker's job is a form of care work, that it should be this sort of ascetic sacrifice is is not only profoundly. Sexist and uh, hostile yes. to workers' rights, but results in worse care being provided. So, I mean, it's it's a cynical and
1: yeah so, fucked I mean, up
0: way to frame things, <laughs>
1: right? So, I want to I want to lead off by saying I'm not criticizing any union that goes on a strike just for a raise. I will always think that that is fine. That said, bargaining for the common good is the name that that unions use for this model, and it's been pushed in a variety of places over the last several years. To think about ways to bring, again, demands that the broader community has as a whole for the public sector to the public sector bargaining table. So teachers unions have been using this across the country. Again, places that haven't gotten um, marquee attention because they haven't had major strikes have actually really successfully utilized this model to get good contracts without having to go on strike. So like Seattle almost had a strike last year. Um, The St. Paul teachers have come to the brink of striking a couple of times and have gotten really impressive contracts out of it with things that the community, again, has demanded in them. And so this is a really important thing for unions to be thinking about because, I mean, A, because it it matters and the teachers care about their students, but also because unions are – supposed to be a vehicle for the working class to achieve its demands and desires. And so when unions think this way, when they think about what is best, not just for us, but for the working class as a whole, that's when they are the most successful because they bring out solidarity, they bring out people to their side every day. And that's what it is when, you know, you have 46,000 people rallying downtown. There's only 33,000 teachers in the district and not every single teacher made it to that rally because, again, some people would have had to drive two hours. So 46,000 people means that's a whole bunch of other supporters, parents, friends, partners, students who all showed up too.
0: What is the school district's position? And by the school district, I mean Butner and his <laughs> paid for um, pro-privatization board majority. I, I read something interesting in an L.A. Times column from columnist Steve Lopez, um, who wrote, quote, For the district, the line is mostly financial. It says it can't afford to give teachers everything they want. But you also have to wonder if there's a calculation that a protracted stalemate could be spun to demonize the union and plug charter schools.
1: Oh, yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> that's absolutely what they want to do. One of the school board members, I was told, went on some local broadcast um, and said, like, when your kids bring you a Christmas list, you don't get them everything they want. And that's how the district <laughs> sees the teachers. And they are not pleased with that at all. Um, it really has seemed like the district wants to antagonize this union. And I do not think they are quite aware of what they have just unleashed on their city. So I've been saying this, and this is something that you know very well because you talk about the the you know scraps of late capitalism all the time on your podcast, that the thing that's happened since 2008 is that capital has just gotten increasingly sort of brazen and brutish in its demands on all of us. And so what's happening here is like the charter schools have always kind of been like, they'll sidle in here and they'll sidle in there and they'll get some public money and then they'll get a co-location here or there. And they'll do it all by arguing. that They are the ones who really care about the kids. And that's not what's happening here. Like this is just like, this guy came in, they spent $12 million to buy a school board and they're trying really hard to just like do the whole thing at once. And it feels to me like they're aware that the calculus is changing, that there are big shifts in how this country thinks about charter schools. When you see the Kamala Harris's, right? Kamala, I've never heard her say anything about education ever, who puts out a statement in support of the union. The NAACP switching its position on charter schools to be opposed to charter schools was a really big deal because that was, again, the line of charter schools is that they are the ones who care about black and brown children. This feels very much like. They need. They know they need to do this now, and they think they can break the union. I because
0: because there's partisan polarization taking place around education politics, which is great. Just like it is around border politics, they, this bipartisan consensus around border militarization and demonizing and deporting criminal aliens and all of that—that that was once just like a totally normal thing for Hillary Clinton in 2006 to vote yeah. for the Secure Fence Act to build hundreds of miles of border fencing. Right now, that is seen by huge swaths of the public from center to left as the toxic symbol of hatred. It always should have right. been considered. And the same yeah. with education reform. Yeah. Not that Betsy DeVos isn't extremely dangerous, but this this silver lining to Betsy DeVos being mm-hmm. there, saying exactly. what she's saying and advocating what she's advocating, is it's now very hard for these neoliberal corporate ed reform Democrats to pretend that there's anything remotely progressive about their agenda.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, when we, and we should talk about immigration in relation to the school district in just a second. But yeah, I've have, have seen signs comparing Butner to Trump. And like, honestly, his sort of media strategy kind of <laughs> seems Trump-like. Like on the first day, he told the press that only 3,500 teachers were on strike. There were 46,000 people downtown, according to his own, uh, the, you know, the LAPD. So that's an awful lot of people who weren't on strike. The next day, he flipped and argued that the strike cost the district like $15 million a day. And it's like, buddy, which is it? Are they bleeding you dry or is nobody taking part? You know, and they're, they're, they're seem kind of all over the place. And I think, I don't know what their strategy is other than to just wait and hope that like the parents start turning on the teachers. But the poll that came out, um, I think officially it dropped yesterday from Loyola Marymount University, only 18% of LAUSD parents are opposed to the strike. That is phenomenal numbers. And citywide, even parent, non-parents, every demographic group, everybody, is over 50% support for the strike. So, you know, those numbers will probably change as it becomes increasingly a pain in the butts of parents and everybody else. But, like, for now, I don't know what the strategy is other than literal brute force, and I do not think that will go over very well. But that is kind of what we're seeing everywhere, right? And so it's not all that surprising.
0: Butner has said that the union, instead of striking, should join the district in taking the fight, to the state, which controls so much funding. And although that is obviously incredibly cynical of him to make that argument, given the privatization strategy that he's pushing, which is bleeding public schools dry by diverting funding to charters, it does reflect a familiar mismatch in the public ed wars, where the employer that teachers strike and fight against is a big urban school district that that starved for funding in significant part By a state government that provides over this broader segregated system of separate and unequal schools, something that's compounded in California, as you referred to earlier, by Proposition 13, passed in 1978, which severely limited property taxes and also went on to launch the entire, you know, tax revolt conservatism that has warped American politics for decades. Oh, yeah. What do you make of this dynamic and how it's playing out? in L.A. and California. Has the union figured out the complicated way to simultaneously fight the district and the state, given that so much power and money lies in the latter? Yeah.
1: I mean, the thing is that really what's happening here is like this is a Democratic state top to bottom right now. There are like two Republicans left in California. Um, Gavin Newsom (laughs) is the new governor. Eric Garcetti is the, the mayor of Los Angeles, the the Dems have a super majority in the state legislature. Like, this is Dems all the way down here, right? But so the two things about funding that the union is saying right now, one is that according to the district's own audit, they have a $1.9 billion, that's a billion with a B, reserve fund. And the union is saying, open that the hell up, Right. And then, too, they're saying, yes, we want to go for funding. We want more funding. We want the state to do this. They, in fact, are part of a coalition that's putting Prop 13 reform on the ballot in 2020. The Schools and Communities First Act would do, um, I believe, its um, reform of Prop 13 for corporations.
0: That would be a nail in the Reaganite Orange right. County coffin. So it
1: would bring in, they're saying like $11 billion a year in new revenue for the state. So they're absolutely on board with, we need to do away with this hell thing that is Prop 13. Um, although there's, you know, complications with tax property taxes in a gentrifying city when you have people sure. who were able, you know, working class people who were able to buy a house 15 years ago, then a priced out of their house if the taxes go up.
0: Because relying on, relying on property taxes for public education funding, period, is part of the problem.
1: Also, well. yes. Um, but so so that's absolutely what's happening here. And the district will note and the teachers will note that the school board of uh, the district, excuse me, has not endorsed this Prop 13 reform. So they say they want to go to the state for money, but they sure don't want their buddies to have to pay any of it. And then also one of the teachers was telling me, you know, not that long ago, the the sort of public school side of the school board, because the school board breaks down by sort of people who are ch- pro-charter and people who are not, that people have, have proposed a parcel tax that would go into funding the schools and the you know, pro charter wing of the school board voted against it. So, I mean, it's pretty clear that they don't want any of the things that would actually help with funding. Um, and they don't want to spend the money they have.
0: Are you suggesting that Butner and his allies are not acting in good faith?
1: <laughs> I mean, you want to know about not acting in good faith. Can I tell you about the bargaining on the last day? So Friday, I was, I got here on Wednesday and um thursday i went to venice high school and saw a community rally that was a pre-strike rally that some retired teachers and and community members and students had put together friday i drove up to the hill to tojunga which i mentioned and hung out with a teacher librarian up there who was telling me about and this is just a little aside but i have to share it because it's such a story she's a full-time librarian at this school now but before that she was itinerant which means that she was at different schools for different parts of the week So there was one period of time where she was at two different campuses. So one of them, she was at two days a week. And one of them, she was at three days a week, except the one that she was at three days a week was actually a school campus that had three different schools in it. So she was in a different library, pretty much four out of five days a week. That was her job. And the schools, when she's out there, they don't have a librarian. So you, you know, if you need a book on Tuesday and the librarian's only there on Wednesday, you're SOL. Um, In any case, I was driving back down from, The Hills sitting in L.A. traffic and I get the press release from the district saying they were supposed to have bargaining. Um, I had been in the UTLA hall that morning to meet with Alex Caputo Pearl and I left because he was going to bargaining at 9 a.m. like he was supposed to. Do you know who didn't come to bargaining at 9 a.m.? I have a guess. Yeah. The district did not show up to the bargaining session. The teachers ended up watching a press conference that Butner held to announce his new offer to the teachers, he did not actually make that offer to the teachers. And this has been an ongoing thing. They have, rather than actually show up at the bargaining table, present the demands, they have repeatedly released the demands to the media first. Um, At one point, they actually announced that a deal had been reached and the teachers called the press conference and were like, "Uh, excuse me, that's not how this works. So they have repeatedly done things like that and then turned around and accused the union of bargaining in bad faith, which is really, really kind of ironic.
0: Where have Governor Newsom and Mayor uh, Garcetti been on this? It seems like Garcetti has been more supportive, perhaps because he imaginatively believes that he has a shot at the 2020 Democratic nomination. I
1: mean, define supportive, though. Like, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm coming at this. I'm used to New York City, where, like, if you have a labor rally, you'll be tripping over, you know, ambitious politicians who are coming to step up to the union. Seriously. I'm not kidding about this. I literally tripped. Actually, she tripped over me once. Christine Quinn, like, ran me over at a rally once. Um, that's ill. I have not seen them on the picket line. I, I kind of want to know where Bernie is, frankly. Um, I would like to see a lot of them on the picket lines out here. Um, I have seen Steve Van Zandt was here today. Uh, we've got some celebrities because it's LA. But like, yeah, you know, there have been some statements. Um, some reporters were calling around to California politicians and making statements. Um, I've heard things that like Adam Schiff's office was sending people. I've heard that, you know, local um, politicians have been on, on the lines with people. But I haven't seen anything that looks like real support. And kind of surprised, honestly. Um, because I would think that, you know, after last year, after the last eight years, we would see more actual support. That said, what's been interesting is who's putting out statements. You know, the Democratic National Committee put out a statement saying we support the UTLA
0: on Monday,
1: on Monday, first day. That is not, as you were saying before, what policy was in the Democratic Party a couple years ago. I mean, Cory Booker still thinks he's going to be president. But, you know, You know, Kamala Harris puts out a, you know, I think she tweeted in support, whatever. But it is interesting to see that, you know, they have to at least be seen in public to sound supportive. Nobody wants to go head to head with a massively powerful and currently very popular teachers union. So, you know, I I think a lot of them are hoping this will be settled quietly Uh, People that I'm talking to on the ground expect both Garcetti and Newsom to potentially have to play a role here. The other wild card for Gavin Newsom is that the Oakland teachers are also on the verge of a strike. And if that happens, I mean, if it happens and L.A. is still out and there's major teacher strikes up and down California on the new governor's first month or two in office, um, you know, they're going to have to do something about this. And their tweets are not going to cut it.
0: Do you have thoughts about why this hasn't seemed to get as much play in the national mainstream media as the so-called red state teachers strikes?
1: The red state rebellion, first of all, it kind of happened at a slow time in Trumplandia. And I know, you know, the sort of news cycle in the Trump presidency has just been like there's constantly eight million things happening. But there was a period where things kind of slowed down, and that happened to be when the teacher strikes kicked off. So I think that was one bit of it. Also, it's weird. Yeah. Um, it's sort of un, unknown to people, and that was interesting. What we know about the mainstream media, right, is that like unions are only ever so interesting. And the strike is big, it's complicated, it's difficult, it's, again, pitting the union against capital in a very blatant way, but also, you know, again, it's Democrats all the way down in the state. It doesn't sort of become a partisan fight, which is the thing that the mainstream political media understands best is like Democrats versus Republicans. That's the language
0: that they understand politics. Right,
1: exactly. It's always these two sides and that's it and what's happening here. Um, And so, you know, I think there's that. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a dedicated labor reporter. There's a few of us left in the country. It ain't cheap. I'm basically funding myself on this trip here. Um, I will break even if I'm lucky, having come out here. And that's kind of the reality of covering labor in this time and place.
0: I'd like to place this in some broader theoretical context. I was reading a piece by socialist feminist Tiffy Bhattacharya, who I hope to have on Soon. And she had a piece on the strike where she wrote, quote, struggles in the care or social reproduction sector are especially explosive today. As neoliberalism demands more hours of waged work per household and less support for social provisioning, it puts tremendous pressure on families and particularly on women in those families. Struggles over social reproduction and care have thus acquired renewed meaning in the neoliberal era. My question is, what does the fact that it is teachers, workers at the core of the social reproductive economy, who are leading, that it is them who are leading the strike wave, what does that tell us about the nature of contemporary capitalism and how to struggle against it?
1: I think there are so many layers to that, right? So one of the things, just the basic, basic, Function of teachers and why teachers have been beat up in the press for the last however long is that teachers have been women. Teachers have been women in this country since the beginning of public schools, largely because they were presumed to be cheap, because women were supposed to be married to men who would do the real earning of a wage, right? Women are presumed to be naturally more caring and more dedicated to the well-being of children, and so therefore they would work for less money, they'd be cheap, and they'd be a nice docile workforce. I would like to introduce anybody who thought that to some of the L.A. teachers that I've met. But so that's kind of a a number one bottom level thing that's happening here. And these teachers in particular, and we haven't talked that much about the demographics of this district. I've talked more about the geography of it. But this is this is an overwhelmingly poor and non-white school district. Right. So L.A., everybody thinks of, you know, sort of actors and Hollywood and all of this money. And there's a ton of rich people here and there's a ton of rich white people here. But they, those are not the kids going to L.A. public schools. The kids who are going to L.A. public schools are something like 80 percent qualified for free and reduced price lunch.
0: And as a quick aside, a lot of those people started stopped sending their kids to public schools decades ago to resist integration.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, Alex Caputo Pro will point out that the you know the defunding of public ed started at about the same time that the um, percentage of kids of color in public schools started going up. So now we're talking about a district that has you know the the number one the biggest proportion of non-white students are um, Central and South American, but that you've also got immigrant kids from all over the place. I'm talking to teachers who have five, six, seven, eight languages spoken at their school. One who you know the biggest. Um, the proportion of immigrants speak Farsi. You know, it just depends on which part of town you're in. There are so many different deep ethnic communities in LA.
0: You mean the first category of Central and South American? Uh, you meant to include Mexican in that, or yeah, yeah. Yep, gotcha. Cool.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about a district that is overwhelmingly low income, overwhelmingly um you know tons of language learners and overwhelmingly non-white that is who goes to these schools um these are working class black and brown kids we should really emphasize that every single time and the union does and that is a big reason why it is just fine to attack them and shove them into classes with 50 students in them because you know these are the people we don't care about this is you know where we talk about the school to prison pipeline and things like that um We talk about deportation. We talk about all of that. That's who is being defunded. That's who people don't really care about. When, you know, the slogan that started in Chicago that we now hear everywhere, which is the teacher's working conditions are our students' learning conditions. A lot of people just straight don't care about the learning conditions of poor black and brown kids. And that's just a reality. And so when you start to strip back the public sector that serves those people first, this is what happened with welfare reform. We're going to talk about, you know, things that started in California, Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. and welfare reform. Um, you were able to attack welfare because welfare aid to families with dependent children was a program that was seen wrongly. By the way, it was always mostly white yeah. women who used it, but it was seen as a program that was helping black women and their children. And so we have a long history of starting the gutting mm-hmm. of the social welfare state with black and brown women and their kids. And that is what's happening here again. And so you look at that and you you have to, you know, I, I want to talk about, you know, like Compahee River Collective Statement, right? If we, if black women, their demands are met, if they are taken care of, then everybody else will be taken care of on, all the way up. And that's one part of the puzzle.
0: And a quick aside, the flip side of that is true. Looking at the history of the rise of mass incarceration, obviously, Black people in particular have been the most spectacularly and excessively and disproportionately punished by the rise of mass incarceration, but that racist, spectacular punishment of black people has also legitimated a system of mass incarceration that also chews up plenty of white people.
1: Exactly, exactly. So there are plenty of kids who are not black and brown in these schools. Um, and they you know, there are plenty of people who might be more likely to send their kids to public schools if they knew that their kid wouldn't be in a classroom full of 50 people, some of whom have to stand. The public sector gets hollowed out that way, and then it screws over everybody. So we, we know this, right? We know this is how this works. We know that where the wedge of these things always comes in. We know how the the charter schools again will come in and say, well, we want to make things better for these black and brown children who aren't being served well by these schools. But actually, what they do is they have no programs for English English language learners. They have no special ed programs. So all of the kids who need special education are pushed back into the public school where they don't have enough counselors and they don't. Have enough special ed teachers and they don't have enough regular teachers Um, and then they
0: declare the public schools to be a failure and thus in need of private sector competition how convenient
1: right the vicious cycle of it is just ongoing and so when we think about the sort of crisis of social reproduction that people talk about a lot these days we should understand this in i mean a right it affects all of us but these are the ways that the, the working class is divided Broken up, turned against itself, and then systematically, you know, the, the things that we would think of as like the social wage, right? The stuff that everybody gets as a virtue of being in America. I don't want to say being an American because I'm talking about a lot of immigrant people here who do not and are not considered American, whatever, you know, is going on in this stupid country. Um, <laughs> those things are going away. And they're going away because. They were successfully painted as handouts to undeserving black and brown people rather than a social wage, a social benefit for everybody. And so the teachers have done a very, very good job in the last several years of turning that around and saying public education should be a public good. The school, though, should be something more than just a place that educates. It should be a place that cares. It should be a place where there's a nurse. It should be a place where there's a counselor. It should be a place where the parents can feel comfortable coming in. It should be a place that serves the entire community. And that is again, I, I said this before, and i'm I'm, you know, saying it again, it's a, a demand for the revival of the entire idea of public space and public good that is the biggest challenge out there that anybody is raising to the entire idea of sort of there, you know, there is no alternative. Margaret Thatcher, there is no such thing as society. That kind of argument, right? Margaret Thatcher famously said, there's no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. And the idea behind that, you just had Melinda Cooper on, is that individuals and families are just responsible for their own things. That is the logic of charter schools. The logic of charter schools is I'm going to get my kid into a good school and my kid will do better. And I don't care about everybody else that gets left behind at their, you know, what would have been their community public school because I need my kid to do better. And that's like that's logical. Right. If you have a kid. I don't, but I know people who do. <laughs> if you have a kid, you want the best for your kid. You want your kid in the best school. I don't know any leftist in New York City who has a kid who wants their kid to just go to any crappy school. They are all trying to get their kid into the best school that school choice can get them. Right? This is it is logical. It, it's that is how the world problem. works because right. But the problem there is like right, when everybody's just getting theirs and nobody said for, you know, decades and decades, we've got to fight for the entire thing then the entire thing is just getting worse and worse. And now, again, you've got 45, 50 kids in a classroom. And so this is when we get to the point where the teachers unions are saying, wait, 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 we've got to fight for it all. And that means bringing things to bargaining that, you know, maybe won't get into the contract this time around, whether it's public housing, whether it's a, cha- a cap on charter schools. Those might not be in this contract. But there are now demands that are being made in the, in, in the city, in the air, in the public, in the national conversation, the same way, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets uh, you, stuff into the national exactly conversation. You guessed exactly where I was about to go. <laughs> right. When you get these things out there, when you say – Right, Charter schools are draining the community of funds to make these you know rich jerks richer. then you you put that out there, and it doesn't all happen at once, right? Just like you know you can't elect one politician and expect there to be magically a green new deal because you know the Democrats are going to do everything to undermine it possible, but it's out there, and it's something to fight for, and now you have demands sort of worth dreaming about, and this has been true of all of the the labor movements that we've seen any real significant movement on in the last few years. You know, I'm thinking about the fight for 15. When fast food workers first went out and demanded $15 an hour, people looked at them like they were nuts. The minimum wage in New York City was still $7.25. You know, that was doubling their wages. That was crazy. But it was a big enough demand for people to be willing to put their ass on the line. You're not going to take a risk.
0: 2016 was only two years ago. And now, like most any poser... Uh, about to run for office (laughs) loves Medicare for all.
1: Exactly. Exactly. All these things were absurd that long ago. Right. They were not absurd that long ago, but they are big enough to fight for. And that's the thing. It's like, you don't, you know, these teachers aren't on the picket lines for a 6% raise. A 6% raise is just ridiculous, right? That's nothing. They're still, as they noted, are still going to be like net negative when it comes to cost of living increases around here, because the city is just getting much more expensive really fast. You have to actually give people a demand big enough to raise them hell over.
0: I want to close by asking what we might learn from Rosa Luxemburg today. You texted me the other day that you were, you were in a standing room only Starbucks during the strike reading Luxemburg's book, The Mass Strike. She was she was murdered 100 years ago. One of her key arguments in that book, and I'm quoting from Mass Strike, is that, quote, Economic struggle is the transmitter from one political center to another. The political struggle is the periodic fertilization of the soil for the economic struggle. Cause and effect here continually change places. In other words, if I'm reading her right, economic fights feed political fights, and political fights in turn feed the economic struggle. That's the dynamic, at least, that we, the virtuous dynamic that we want if things are going right. How should the American left and labor movement think of these strikes, this teacher strike wave in particular, as part of a bigger struggle to transform the country and ultimately win something bigger? And what does Luxembourg, since you've been reading her so recently, teach us about this?
1: The thing about Rosa is that all of these wonderful pieces that she wrote, right, Reformer Revolution, The Mass Strike, and these are all like short, readable things. Reformer Revolution has some debates with people that we've all forgotten about because they lost. But these are all things that are eminently readable, and I think everybody should. And they're all also available for free on the internet. Go to Marxist.org. Um, because what she does here, she explains how these things interplay. And it's always about the interplay for Rosa. It's never about, like, this is what we should do, right? Um, my friend James Butler from Novara Media wrote a piece about Rosa that went up on her the anniversary of her death. And he said, you know, this the idea of Luxembourgism would have been silly to her. I probably call myself a Rosa Luxembourgist, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> that, that you know, she wasn't writing "What Is to Be Done." She was writing, "This is what happened in the mass strike in Russia." And she, the mass strike is about the um, Russian Revolution in 1905, the first one, and how
0: the so-called dress rehearsal for 1917.
1: Yeah. But, you know, so you have and this is actually interesting when we're talking about Red for Ed and the UTLA strike, too, because, you know, you, you always have people who think that, like, there's just a ge- you can just call a general strike and it will happen. Right. Remember this during Occupy and all of that stuff. We would be like, call a general strike, call a general strike. <laughs> a general strike doesn't happen because you call it. A general strike happens because the forces at play are building towards it. So when you have something like what happens in West Virginia, as a general strike of teachers, right? That's basically what that was. Um, or you have something like what happened in Wisconsin in 2011 during the Capitol occupations, when you just had a whole bunch of people who just stopped work and were going to the Capitol. You, you know, these are things that have been like the most like a general strike that we've seen in recent times. It happens because of this building and building and building, and then also because there's some spark that you can't you can't just call into being. And this is a thing that I think Rose understood really well. So this strike here, again, I've said that UTLA has been organizing and building and organizing and building for years. And they did things, you know, this, um, the union power slate when they took power, they brought in an organizing department, they brought in a research department, they brought in a community department and staffed all of these up in a political department and got the union to vote to raise its own dues in order to do all these things, because the union didn't have any of those before. And so they built a structure That could pull off this strike. But if the teachers weren't mad and there wasn't momentum around changing the public schools, if this all wasn't a thing that these teachers actually feel in their bones, they would have lost the strike vote and nothing would have happened. So, you know, no matter how nice your strategy is on paper, if you don't have that spark and if you don't ride it, if you don't recognize it when you see it, then it's all of your planning is going to go to hell. So, when we're talking about economic struggles and political struggles and, you know, They are, on some level, you know, they're not differentiable, right? When you're fighting for a raise for teachers, you are fighting for a raise in the value of public education. You are fighting to recognize that this thing matters. And when you're fighting for smaller class sizes, which is a fight for, you know, hiring more teachers, you are fighting to value public education. Uh, When you have, you know, the superintendent whining that the strike costs them $15 million a day in the district, well you know how many teachers could you have hired to avert the strike with that money but it's it's it almost sounds funny to say a strike is costing the school district money right because like the school district more than one teacher has said to me you know we don't produce widgets we're not on an assembly line you can't standardize what we do back to the social reproduction question right the difference between factory work and teaching nursing anything like that where the product is not a thing at the end, but the product is people that are healthy, that are taught, that are well, that are able to take part in society. That kind of thing, you know, when you just try to say it's economic, it's just, you know, the, the sort of class issues, the bl- bread and butter issues, all of that stuff, you miss that like, well, every little facet of our existence is political, right? But that all of this is intertwined in this way that feeds all of these demands so you know you have teachers calling for hiring more things they're also just calling for sort of basic respect and they're also calling for again for their school to be a place that everybody feels comfortable one of my favorite signs there are some beautiful like screen printed posters that a bunch of people have and one of them just says teachers we work for the people and I love that
0: well Sarah Jaffe thank you very much as always thank you Sarah Jaffe is a reporting fellow at Type Media Institute the author of Necessary Trouble and of an upcoming book on the problems with the labor of love thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine as Marx once said after remarking that in the struggle this mass becomes united and continues itself as a class for itself. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. Some weeks, like this week, twice. Other weeks, just once. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreer. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And do find us at patreon.com slash dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks is a huge help.